Well, it's good to see those of you here in the room as well as uh, those of you online. Um, we're ready to start. We're in chapter 24 in our <clears throat> focus on the patriarchs of, uh, of the Old Testament. Now, it's, uh, it's important to remember here um, a word that I taught you, a Hebrew word, and that word is chesed. Do you remember that? Um, a couple of you are shaking your head that you sort of remember that. Oh, boy. Chesed, chesed. It's that guttural word. If this were a class where I would have the freedom to do that, I would ask you to pronounce it and go through it with me. We do an exercise on it. But you gentlemen are, are all distinguished gentlemen who remember things instantly, so I don't have to do that. A chesed, very guttural word. It's a covenant, loyal love of God. And it is the key word for this chapter. And it's a very, I mean, I would assume for most of you, it's a very familiar chapter, but it's the servant of Abraham going up to their uh, original home in Haran, Potomaram, that area, uh, to find a wife for Isaac. And that chesed is, it will be translated, I read from the ESV translation, so it will be translated steadfast love in the translation I'm using. Sometimes you'll see this loyal love. Uh, sometimes you'll see it just as faithfulness. But I like the ESV's translation, steadfast love. So that's a little bit of introduction, but keep that in mind as we go through. The other aspect of this chapter is the providence of God. And uh, a number of years ago, I read... <clears throat> a little essay by Chuck Swindoll, and I hope you all recognize that name, but Chuck Swindoll, and he was uh, suggesting that we eliminate these words from our vocabulary as Christians. Chance, fate, and coincidence. And I, I agree with that. I didn't always agree with that, but in my maturity with the Lord, I've come to realize that is probably accurate, because if you believe in God's sovereignty and God's providence, then things don't just happen. Everything, everything is a part of God's plan for our lives. And so we struggle with the right way to use, but words like we, God permits this, God allows this for greater purposes, and so on. But here we see just an incredibly positive aspect and illustration of God's providence. And, and remember, providence means God is involved in his world. He's not a distant landlord. He is involved. He's accomplishing his purposes in his, in his plan. Okay, with those two introductory comments, chesed and... That's the Lord calling to remind me. Now, Abraham verse 1. Now, Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord blessed Abraham in all things. Now that, in a way, verse 1 is a summary statement. We're going to read, before this is all over, Abram's going to pass away, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. But that statement, Abram's all well advanced, and the Lord. And notice again, Lord there is in capitals, uppercase, that's Yahweh, had blessed Abraham in all things. And there's no, um, no more comprehensive statement about Abraham's life than that. And God blessed Abraham in all things. 
And Abraham said to his servant, now at this point in chapter 24, the servant is not named. So we have to be careful. Many suggest, you might go back to chapter 15, got to go back a number of chapters, but the key servant in Abraham's household was Eliezer. Now, do you remember that name, Eliezer? But here, it's, it's, the servant is not named. So it could be Eliezer, but we don't know. So for whatever reason uh, we cannot possibly figure out, uh, the servant goes nameless. So we don't know for sure who it is. He said to his servant, the oldest of his household had charge over all that he had. Now, that would fit Eliezer. If you go back to chapter 15, that would fit him. But for whatever reason, God has chosen not to have him named, so we don't know. Continuing then, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by Yahweh, the God of heaven, the God of earth. Now, let me stop you there. First of all, note how... Abraham addresses God in this pledge he wants his servant to make. Yahweh, God of heaven, God of earth. That's a very comprehensive, in, in literature we call that a merism. It's, it's all, every opposite and everything in between. A God, a merism, M-E-R-I-S-M. Everything that's in earth, everything that's in heaven, everything in so it's another way, it's kind of a figurative way of just affirming God's sovereignty. There's nothing outside of God's control. Now that's important for the servant to remember that because what Abraham is going to ask him to do is going to require an affirmation of God's sovereignty. Okay? The other thing I want you to notice is put your hand under my thigh. Now, those of you that are watching online. I don't know if you remember what it but that means like this. Now that to you and me means absolutely nothing. <laughs> but in the ancient Near Eastern world, that was a way in which you took an oath. That was the way in which you made a vow. And it's the symbolic um, aspects of that remain somewhat mysterious. There are a lot of different ideas of why that was a way in which you took an oath. I mean, today, can you imagine in a courtroom, you're ready to, to swear that you're going to tell the truth, and this put your hand <laughs> under the judge's thigh, you know, it's like, oh, good night. So obviously we don't do that, but it, don't make much out of it. There really isn't much to make out of it, except this is an ancient Near Eastern way of making a vow. And so Abraham is asking his servant, whether it's Eliezer or not, we don't know, to affirm that what he is about to say to him, he's going to swear this. He's going to make a vow. He's going to make an oath. Uh, and so what does he want him to do? Continuing in verse 3, the middle of verse 3, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. So it's a two-part vow. Don't do this, but do this. Now, a reminder, if, you're, if you follow in, on the map, there's a map on page 19, if you want to, or whatever, where Abraham is, he's in, he's in uh, Beersheba, he's in Hebron, he's in the southern part, and what, what he says, don't go among the Canaanites. Remember, 
Abraham is in the covenant land, but he's the only Jew in the covenant land because there aren't any others other than his son, Isaac, and his wife, Sarah, and so on. So all around them are Canaanites. And that wisely and correctly, Abraham says, I don't want my son to marry a Canaanite girl. So where are the other options? My family, way up north, it'll be about 500 miles kind of northeast, is Haran, H-A-R-A-N. That is where Abraham was from on his journey from Mesopotamia, or uh, the Chaldees, southern Mesopotamia, all the way up to the head of the Mesopotamian Valley, and he came down to Promise. So he wants to go back up there. That's where his father had, uh, his father's dead by now. That's where his father was, his brothers and sisters. And so Abraham wants Isaac to marry a girl from his extended family. And that makes sense, rather than a Canaanite. So the, the, the servant must swear, don't find a wife among the Canaanites. Go home 500 miles northeast and find a girl. Now, that's an enormous responsibility to put on someone's shoulders because Abraham is one of the most important and, and, and wealthiest men in this area. And so whoever Eliezer is, whoever this servant is, Abraham is putting upon him an enormous responsibility. Continuing, verse 5, the servant said to him, the him would be Abraham, perhaps the woman may not be dwelling, be willing to follow me to this land. May I then take your son back to the land which from which you came, Abraham said, see to it that you do not take my son back there. Now, it's not clear why Abraham doesn't want Isaac to do this, why he doesn't want his servant to take Isaac with him. Could be it's the, the fear of that long trip, that he could be kidnapped or killed, plus whether he would, he, Isaac, if he were to go along, would decide to stay up there. Because remember, what's the key covenant promise? The land. So I do not want my son to leave the covenant land, which is probably the major reason for the discussion. Okay, now look at verse 7. The Lord, again, that's Yahweh, the God of heaven, who took me, from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you. Now there is a quite remarkable statement of faith, but also a remarkable understanding of God's providence. In effect, he's saying, I'll just, I'll pretend it's Eliezer. We don't know for sure, but I'd like to say Eliezer. Assuming it's Eliezer, he's saying to him, God's going to go before you. God's going to prepare the way for you. And one of his messengers, because angel means messenger, one of his messengers will prepare the way. And you shall take a wife from my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. I don't want him to leave the covenant land. She may not want to come back. Then you're free from the vow. 
So you have this, this interchange between Abraham and assuming it's Eliezer and the extraordinary demonstration of Abraham's faith here. I mean, it really is. This is consistent with everything because he is held up in the Bible as a great man of faith. But this confident trust that God's going to provide and this understanding and confidence of God's providence. And again, that's just remarkable. An angel of God is going to go before you. He's going to prepare the way. Okay? Uh, next question. Was <clears throat> the angel going before him, is that a promise that was made, or is that how he feels that God is going to direct us? It's the, it's the latter. How he feels God will, will direct and take care of it. The angel is not a part of the Abrahamic covenant specifically, but angel, I mean, God, excuse me, Abraham had seen the angels of God active in a number of instances in his life. One thinks back to Genesis 18 and 19, you get to Sodom and Gomorrah, along with the theophany of God or two angels. Remember that? Then the two angels go down to Sodom and Gomorrah and so on. So God is, excuse me, Abraham is very understanding that often God intervenes in human history by means of his messengers. And so it's not presumption, it's faith. God is going to prepare the way, Eliezer. And so again, go back to my comment from Chuck Swindoll, if we really trust in the Lord and really believe in God's sovereignty and providence, then words like chance, fate, and coincidence don't belong in our vocabulary. That's a really, I've used that a couple of times over the last year or two. And it's amazing how much pushback I've gotten from that from some people. I don't, well, well, certainly certain things happen by chance. They're things are just a coincidence. You think that's true in the secular world for those who don't trust their faith in Christ? Heavens, yes. Well, the entire model of the origin and development of life on planet Earth is is based, there are three parts of that model. The, the second part is randomness. This is a product of random chance. One very important scientist, brilliant, had two PhDs. He said of the human race, we are a cosmic accident. To me, it takes more faith to believe that than to believe that God created life for a greater purpose. So, yeah. All right. Uh, yes. Um, oh, Russ. Russ. So the, um, you know, that would be the materialist argument. Haven't they moved to uh, panspermia uh, because <laughs> it's mathematically impossible for the previous theory to be correct? There's not enough time. There's not enough matter. There's not enough permutations, combinations. Yes, but absent from that kind of a, another hypothesis, which is really what that is, is any mention of a divine creator who's sovereign and providentially guiding all things to accomplish his purposes. Right. That would be on the other side of the fence. you got to jump That's on correct. the other side of the fence from materialism to do that. That's right. Well, it's, it's, it's really instructive that intellect, uh, intellectually honest bi uh, macrobiologists, physicists, astrophysicists are increasingly having more and more difficulty accepting chance and randomness as a part of their explanation. They, they really are. There was a couple of months ago, there was a marvelous article in the Wall Street Journal. It was an op-ed piece. And there was a guy, he's a, he's a physicist, 
And he uh, was an atheist. He was very secular and, and you know, very much committed to the scientific method and all that. And he said, I began, as the more I studied this, and he'd given a good chunk of his life to it. He's an older man by now. He said, I've come to realize that my field of science, based on randomness, based on the hypothesis that started with Darwin and so on, is more and more untenable. Because the scientific method is you based you base your understanding of truth on the scientific method where you test things that you can see, that you can hear, you can touch, and so on. And that's how you verify the truth. But he said, as a physicist, I have been driven to the, to the conclusion that's not very tenable because 96% of the universe is invisible. 96% of everything that makes up matter you know, we talk now about dark matter, dark forces, muons and leptons and quarks and all those things. He said, I can't verify any of that by the scientific method, but I am instructed to believe it. And so he says, I am now, he has become a Christian. I am now asking my fellow scientists to embrace that which can be verified, which is the spiritual truth centered in Jesus Christ. So it's really it's it's really interesting. Scientists that are intellectually honest are beginning to be honest about their theories and their their models of how life and indeed physical matter developed. So Russ, you and I are now going to stop talking about that because the rest of the guys are yawning. <laughs> so we're going to move into the next verse, verse nine. So the servant could be Eliezer put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master and swore to him concerning the matter. I explained to you what that time Okay. Now, how does Eliezer prepare for this 521-mile journey? Then the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. Now, a camel, and uh, by the way, this is really, can I go down to my show real quickly? Not too many years ago, biblical critic, people who are critical of the Bible said, this is ridiculous. Nobody can believe that. Camels were not used as work animals until about 1,000 B.C., and Abraham is about 2,100 B.C. Well, there have been a whole series of archaeological discoveries that have demonstrated camels were used almost from the beginning of recorded history as work animals. So this doesn't contradict. This is not a step. Well, this can't possibly be true. It is true. There's no problem believing that Abram had many, many camels as workhorses, work animals, I should say, animals of burden, to carry a lot of the things on that 500-mile trip. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. Now, again, I mean, if, if you're interested in these things, there's a map on page 18 of your notes that shows you where Haran is. This is a map I'm talking about, page 18. Here's where Abraham is. Here is where Haran is. So it's 500 miles up. And this is Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia is the land between the two rivers, Tigris and Euphrates. It's the north part of Mesopotamia. So that's all it's telling us. So this is a significant trip. But he's taking with him a significant, what you will see in a minute, gift to the family of Abraham. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of the water at the time of the evening. 
Now, from verse 10 to verse 11, he has gone 500 miles. From verse 10 to verse 11, it's weeks later, because the typical, the typical, um, what do you call it, caravan, maybe I'm not sure that's what they would call it, but I'll use that word, you know what I mean. The typical caravan of individual people plus work animals, you go about, if you're going at a good pace, 20 miles a day. If you have an older man like me, you're going to go at a slower pace. But whatever, just do 20 miles a day and 500 miles, you can see it's several weeks <laughs> till they get there. So from verse 10 to verse 11, it's weeks later, they traveled 500 miles. He's now outside the city of Nahor, which is the northern part of Mesopotamia. Are you with me? I'm just trying to make sure you don't ask me a question two, two, two minutes later. It's clear what's going on. So he's outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening when the women go out to draw water. It's a very typical ancient Near Eastern practice. And he said that he would be Eliezer, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please give me success today and show chesed to my master Abraham. Show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Demonstrate to him and now to me, his servant, your loyal covenant love. You have promised my master land, seed, and blessing. You've promised my master. This is a very important part of that, Lord. Give me success today. Now, I want you to notice how specific he is here. Behold, I'm standing by the spring of water. I'm in verse 13. And the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Verse 14. Here's the proposition. It's extremely specific. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels, let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown chesed to my master, steadfast, loyal, covenant love to my master. Now this prayer, again, I'm going to assume it's Eliezer, although I can't be certain, but this prayer of Eliezer demonstrates two things. First of all, it demonstrates confident trust in God. And number two, it also evidences a commitment and understanding of God's providence. That's why I, when I started our discussion this morning, I want to make sure you understand those two terms, chesed and the providence of God. Here is a man of profound faith. Here is a man who understands God's providence. And so what he is doing, I mean, this is, I like this in the sense that it is good for us to be very specific in our praying. It's very, very good for us to be very specific in what we're asking the Lord to do. And here's Eliezer. I mean, this, this, is, this is a remarkable prayer. I mean, you're going to see it's going to be fulfilled it's very specifically. But I mean, this is, there is no way he's going to make a mistake in terms of this woman. <laughs> 
Let's see, there are three or four possibilities. That, which one is it? No way. The way he set it up, it is impossible for him. I'm getting all excited. But it is impossible for him to make a mistake the way he set it up. And he's trusting in God. And he believes strongly and deeply in God's providence that God can arrange affairs to accomplish his purpose. Fate, chance, coincidence. They don't belong in our vocabulary as Christians. Verse 15. Before he had finished speaking, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother. Now, where have you read that before? At the end of chapter 22. You remember that? We did that last week. And there was just this little, a couple of verses that traced the genealogy of Rebecca. And I told you, this is a very important, as this is occurring in Abraham's life, 500 miles to the Northeast, something else has happened. Rebecca's born. And it's, it, it, this is one of the favorite, favorite literary tactics of Moses in, the, in, in his five, first five books of the, of the Old Testament. We call these walk-ons. He's dealing with something major, something really big, and I'll have a little tiny two or three verse thing at the end of a chapter where somebody really important chapters later is born or comes out to walk on. And it's almost like she's saying, don't forget this. Chapters later, this person's going to come up again. But this is where they fit in the chronology of what he's doing. And so this is just none of this should be, should be um, foreign to you because we read about her two chapters ago, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance. A maiden, that's, uh, that's a good translation. But that, what that Hebrew word means is, she's not just a young maiden, she is of marriageable age. She isn't nine years old, she isn't 80 years old. She's a woman of marriageable age, whom no man had known. Another way of saying she's a virgin. She went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up. And a servant ran to meet her and said, please give me a little water to drink from your jar. And she said, drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, he said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. What has just happened? What Eleazar had specifically set up as the test has now been fulfilled. There is no doubt this is the girl God has designed for Isaac, my master's son. So just think of, and I mean this sincerely, just think of the joy in Eliezer's heart. My God has answered my prayer. I can go back to my master with the clarity. I have found the girl that God wants for your son. So she quickly emptied their jar into the trough, ran again to the well to draw water. She drew all for his camels. The man gazed, the man, his Eliezer, gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. He's watching. And what that means, it sounds a little funny. What that means is he's watching every single thing she does to make sure it conforms to his prayer request. So what's his conclusion? This is the girl. 
Got it? Verse 22. When the camels had finished drinking, this man, again, this is Eliezer, took a gold ring weighing half a shekel that has no meaning to us because we don't have measures like that. But that's a significant amount. Half a shekel. A shekel is about 11 grams. So it's about half. of That's that's a pretty nice rock. As girls sometimes talk about a ring, by the way. Weighing half a shekel, two bracelets for her arms, weighing 10 gold shekels. 10 gold shekels. Now, again, you know, in Israel, the official currency of Israel is the shekel. Uh, but it doesn't have any resemblance to this. So it's really hard to make an equivalent value in the 21st century. But I think you would obviously agree, this is a very significant demonstration of Abraham's wealth to this girl, Rebecca. This ring and these bracelets would be of significant value in the ancient world. And said, please tell me whose daughter you are. Is the room in your father's house for us to spend the night? Okay, he is inching this along. He has given her very expensive gifts. And now he has the audacity to say, I'd like to sleep tonight in your dad's house. And so, I mean, this is, again, and it's so difficult for us in the 21st century. But ancient Near Eastern hospitality was a given. If you're traveling, you connect with somebody, it was very normal for you to ask if you could sleep with them. I, and when I say, I don't mean you from be able to spend the night, get a good night's rest in their house. And so she, he's asking you, I know who you're, I think I know who your dad is. Will, will your father be able to put me up for the night? Today, for the most part, we would find that abhorrent. Wouldn't we? I mean, it was so much pushback on that. Can I tell you a story? When I was a little boy, now that was back when the Earth's crust was hard, you know, a really long time ago, but it was in the 1950s. And I remember, I can remember this. It's just as, as Peggy and I were talking about this the other night. <laughs> it would be a Sunday afternoon. We'd get home from church. We'd have the church, and Dad said, We're going visiting this afternoon. Did you ever hear that? We're going visiting. What that meant is we were going to their friends, or it could be an older uncle of my dad's or an aunt of my mom's. You didn't call. You didn't make an appointment. You just showed up. And then often when you showed up visiting, they would then say, well, uh, we, we'd love to have you stay for supper. And so, I mean, it was just the audacity. Can you imagine doing that today? Just showing up at somebody's house in the middle of a Sunday afternoon and they would look at you. Most people would slam the door in your face. But at that time, it was a very common thing. I, could, I remember doing that for a number of years. Dad would say, we're going visiting. And my sister, who at that time, there were only two children, there were eventually before. But my sister and I were little. And that's just what we did. And almost always, you'd end up staying for supper and, and all of that. But I do remember a couple of times, I remember one man particularly, Said, well, we just don't have enough food in the house. We can't let you stay for supper. Again, a very bold thing to say. It's almost an offense, but that's the way it was. So, in a sense, 
the hospitality in the United States that was a part of, of a good chunk of our history is no longer. That's, that's an unacceptable cultural practice. You don't go visiting anymore. If you go visiting, a lot of get shot by somebody. You know, think you're breaking into their house or something. I'm mixing a little humor with some hyperbole, but none of you are getting it. All right, here we go. She said to him, verse 24, she's answering his question. I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, I, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshiped Yahweh. God has answered his prayers. And notice this remarkable benediction. Verse 27, blessed be Yahweh, the Elohim of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love. I told you in this chapter, that's the key word of this chapter. Has not forsaken his chesed, his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. That's that's a good translation, but my master's relative. Then the young man woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. So Eliezer, uh, it's just it's it's such a wonderful wonderful section because as God answers according to his providence and purposes, the response is worship. I just encourage you in your own life to just think about that. As you pray, as you see God answer and intervene, our immediate response is one of worship. Now that you know that doesn't necessarily mean you, you break out and take out a hymn and start singing lots of hymns, but it's just a worshipful response, acknowledging, thank you, Lord, for doing this. There's no other explanation for what just happened than your intervention. And so it's just, it's a wonderful verse, but I, I draw your attention one more time. It's the third time we've seen it in this chapter, that steadfast love. God is demonstrating his covenant, loyal love to Abraham. And Eliezer recognizes all right, if there are no questions, let's continue. I wanted to be questions so I could take a sip of coffee. But since there aren't any questions, I'm still going to take a sip of coffee. Verse 29, Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. Now, one of the questions that is unanswerable, one of the questions, where's her father? Because he's not mentioned here. The focus is on her uncle, Laban. So it's just, it's, it's, it's one of those, as you study the Bible, you know, and if you read text, sometimes you have questions. And here's one of those questions. She already identified the lineage. Where's your dad? We don't know. I mean, the assumption, obviously, is he perhaps has died. Or perhaps he's on a, a journey. Maybe he's involved in the merchant trade. Or we just don't, but he's not here. So Laban kind of takes over. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. And as soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebecca, his sister, thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man. Behold, he was standing at the camels of the spring. He said, come in, O blessed the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I prepared the house and a place for the camels. Now, what must have happened is Rebecca used her cell phone and called ahead to her brother Laban. 
is a joke. But, I mean, we just don't know. I mean, it sounds as if he had prepared for this coming. He had no idea that, that Leviathan was coming. So presumably, she sent a runner ahead, which would not have been unusual. But anyway, you have what you have here is, again, a, a really remarkable demonstration of ancient Near Eastern hospitality, but also ancient Near Eastern hospitality in the context of a family, an extended family. Because Abraham is part of the extended family. Or you could put it another way, they are all part of Abraham's extended family. And so you have the welcoming, you have the hospitality. But Laban noticed what's on his sister's hand, uh, the ring, and, and the bracelets and so on. I think he had the suspicion this is all about marriage. So the man came to the house, and the man again would be Eliezer unharnessed the camels, gave straw and fodder to the camels, and water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. And food was set before them to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. That's really interesting. Because Eliezer, in effect, is saying, you may not want to extend this hospitality because I want to explain to you why I'm here. So before we eat our pizza, I want to explain why I'm here. Laban says, speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. Yahweh has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants, female servants, camels and luckies. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when he was old. And to him he has given all that he has. He's the heir. My master made me swear, saying, now, there's, this is a repetition of everything that we have been reading. So I don't know if you want to read all this with me. So what he's going to do from verse 37 all the way down to verse 49 is he's going to review everything that just happened. So if it's all right with you, I'm not going to read all this again, because it's exactly everything we've just read. But this repetition, this repetition validates his faith and his commitment to the providence of God. One thing that's new is right in the middle excuse me, it's really at the end of verse 47. When Rebecca identifies who she is, so I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arm. Because up to this point, the assumption was that the ring was on her hand. But he put the ring in her nose. Which again, well, that isn't unusual to see in our age. So maybe we should put it, I was going to say, that's unusual to see in our age, but it isn't unusual. At least I've seen lots of women with rings in their noses and up here's the stud and there's 17 on their ears and on their tongue is a stud. So anyway, but this again is an ancient Near Eastern uh, way of adorning your body as a woman, but it also is an indication of something special. 
again, Laban and the family are understanding that this is a marriage proposal. This isn't just a gracious gift because you watered my camels, Rebecca. There's much more to this. They are recognizing that. And of course, Eliezer. So it's just interesting to note that, that he, Eliezer, put that nose in her, uh, uh, ring in her nose, and then the bracelets on her arms. Then verse 50. So again, I'm not going to read all that again, because we already have read that, except that one piece of information at the end of verse 47. Now, how will Laban and the family respond to this? And Laban and Bethuel said, the thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. So what is Rebecca's family recognizing? No fate, no chance, no coincidence. God did this. There's too many things coming together for us to dismiss this as a coincidence. So the acquiesce. This is of God. The old Rebecca is before you. Take her and go. Let her be the wife of your master's son. As the Lord has spoken. So they, it's a bookend. This is of the Lord. Yes, take her to be the wife of your master's son. As the Lord has spoken. The other bookend. They acquiesce to the will of God. There's no pushback, there's no resistance, there's no protest. God's providence is all over this. God's hand is all over this. God's footprint is all over, all the metaphors we use today, is all over this. We can't resist it. They could have, but they, these two are understanding God is at work. And whether they personally are believing, we just, there is enough information we have. But they're acquiescing to the obvious will of God. Okay? Well, he, he's a man of faith, too. Father. He wouldn't be her her brother, at this case, Laban. Yes, right. He wouldn't be responding. Possibly, probably, but not absolutely. Fred, we don't have enough information to assume that he's a strong man of faith. But remember, uh, in the ancient Eastern world, you believed in God, you believed in the spiritual world. That wasn't an issue. That wasn't a problem. And to acquiesce, it's obviously the gods are very much at work here. So whether this is a very personal statement of faith, right? we don't have enough information to, to, to assume that. We really don't. But the assumption is they're acquiescing to what they see is God's will, the Lord's will. She wouldn't be going anywhere. If that was yeah, that's right. But it is interesting. It is interesting how they try to delay this. That's the next paragraph. They try to delay this. Verse 52. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. Again, there's this marvelous worship. God has answered and so on. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave them to her brother and to her mother's costly garment ornaments. So, I mean, that this is why he needed all those camels. He's carrying all this stuff. 
that he's giving to, to, to Rebecca's family. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they rose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us for a while, at least 10 days. After that, she may go. Willingness, in verse 50 and 51, delay, in verse 55. We want to hold on to her just a little bit longer. Verse 56. But he, this would be Eliezer, said to them, do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. He said, let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebecca and said, will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So the family wants to delay. But as Eliezer presses the issue, and this is again to me, this is God's providence here. And so they said, all right, let's find out with Rebecca. I think their assumption was, because Rebecca's a young girl. She is probably, she's not 20 yet, if it's the typical marriage age in the ancient world. Their assumption was, oh, she's going to want to stay with the family. She, she's going to want to delay too. But Rebecca said, I'll go. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her. Now, most of your uh, translations are going to have this indented. It's, it's like a little poem or a little song. Oh, sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands. May your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. What does that language sound like? Okay, I'll ask it another way. What covenant language does this sound like? This would be the seed part of the covenant, right? Exactly. The seed part of the Abrahamic covenant. May you become thousands of ten thousands. That's another way of saying like the sands of the sea share the scars of the sky. So it, the reason I'm saying that is because what they are, they're blessing the family, extended family that's giving to Rebecca harmonizes with the Abrahamic covenant. Now, again, we just don't have enough information whether they understood the content of the Abrahamic covenant. We just don't know. But what they are saying harmonizes with it. Okay? Everybody with me? you got a couple more minutes. Let me try to finish... Uh, can I finish? Yeah, I think I can. Let's try to finish this. Then Rebecca, I'm in verse 61 now. And Rebecca and her young women, these would be her servants, the people who were with her, rode on camels and followed the man, that would be Eliezer. Then the servant took Rebecca and went his way. Now verse 62, shifting way down. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahai Roy. If you... I mean, if you're really interested in this, if you look here, unfortunately, you have to almost look at the map that's on page 19, but you can see 
right about in the middle of the map where Bir Lachoy Roy is. Uh, but anyway, that's where Isaac is. And it was dwelling in the Negev, that's the desert. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening, and he lifted up his eyes and saw, behold, camels coming. Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel, said to the servant, who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant, again, that assuming is, is Eliezer, said, it is my master. So she took her veil, covered herself, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Servant again, assuming is Eliezer. And Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Now, there is a lot going on in verse 65 through 67. Don't pass over this quickly. First of all, with crystal clear clarity, there's now a new patriarch and a new matriarch of the family. Do you understand what I mean by that language? Abraham is very old. You're going to read in the next chapter, he's going to die. We already read at the end of verse 67, Sarah died. So now you have, it's, it's ceremonial, but it's very, very important. You now have a new matriarch, Rebecca, and a new patriarch, Isaac. The new generation of the covenant blessing is now in charge. Sarah is going to die if she as we see at the end of verse 67. She is replaced by Rebecca. The language. Then he, Isaac, brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother. That is very a symbolic language, but it's very penetrating symbolic language. She's the new matriarch of the clan. And took a Rebecca. She becomes his wife. He, notice Eliezer's words, when Rebecca asked, who is that walking in the field there? That's my master. He said, wait a minute, I thought his master was Abraham. It is, but he's the new master. This is the passing of the covenant to the next generation. And the language of these verses is with crystal clear clarity. Abraham and Sarah are passing from the scene. They're replaced by Isaac and Rebecca. It's the new patriarch and matriarch of the clan. The covenant will now proceed through them. What the family had said in that remarkable blessing we read in verse 60 is about to be fulfilled. So chapter 24, it's, it really is one of my favorite chapters in this material on the patriarch Abraham, because we're at the end of his life. But we see this life of faith which Abraham exemplifies, reaching one of its apex points. Where he sends Eliezer up north to get a, a wife, and how God just masterfully, providentially accomplishes Rebecca becoming the new wife, the new matriarch. And as Sarah passes and as Abraham passes, you have a new patriarch as well. They now, they will mediate the covenant blessing. 
Abraham and Sarah are gone. And that's the beginning of chapter 25, as you'll see in verse 7, Abraham will die as well. Now, before we, we move on, are there any questions about what I was talking about? On the quiz next week, it'll be really important that you remember Chesed. I'll be asking you to pronounce it as well as write it out and define it. So how do you spell it? H-E-S-E-D. Sometimes you will see it written C H. E S E D, but H E S E D. So you will never forget that. That's one of the questions Peter will ask you when you stand at the gate. <laughs> Somebody have a question on? Yeah, I have a question. Right? A quick question. Yep. So back in back in fifty three, where <clears throat> he gave presents to Rebecca and her brother Laban, um, is that kind of like a reverse dowry? Is that common for them? Then? That's a, yeah. That's a really good question. Yes. In effect, it is. It is like a reverse dowry. Yep. Okay. That's real. That's a good way to put it. Yep. Now, okay. Were there any other questions? All right. That's good. So it means you totally understand this chapter. Chesed, providence of God, and a new matriarch, a new patriarch. Let's look at 25. We only got a couple of minutes. We, we only get started on this. Abraham took another wife. Now, don't miss the last phrase of chapter 24. His mother's died. Sarah has died. Abraham took another wife. And that's chronologic. That's important. Her name was Keturah. Now, this gets a little, because there are a lot of names here that are very difficult. Then in Joshua and I'm not going to read all those names. Verse 4, the sons of Midian. Verse 5. But Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. So when Sarah dies, Abraham takes another wife, Keturah. And when you look at all of those names, those names are going to come up again. Midian. You read about the Midianites later in Israel's history. This is where they begin. All of those different names will come up to one degree or another in the history of Israel. And the Arab race is going to come from Abraham. The Bedouins are going to come from Abraham. They all, all the people that populate the Middle East today ultimately go back to Abraham. That is why in Islam, Christianity, and Judaism, Abraham is considered the father of their people. Islam recognizes Abraham. They exalt Abraham. He is an extremely important part of their history. He's all over the Quran because he, Abraham, has lots and lots of kids who populate the Middle East. And you and I in the 21st century, in the Middle East, leaving out all the people who migrated there over, over, over time, but the people who are in, that's where they come from. They're all descendants of Abraham which is really remarkable when you think about it. But notice verse 5, despite all his children, Abraham gave everything to Isaac. Why? He's the covenant son. The year is 2026 B.C. It's a very important year in the history of Israel. But the sons of his concubines... This probably, 
probably means Hagar and Keturah because Sarah is his covenant wife. She dies, he marries Keturah, and we know what happened earlier in history with Hagar. Remember that? And so it just summarizes. Abraham gave gifts, and while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. And all of these people that are listed, all of these Darius individuals and their descendants that are listed in verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, will populate the Middle East. Then verse 7. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. So now just remember, hopefully you can remember this. When he was 75 years old, God promised him a covenant son. He had no children. They wait 25 years till Isaac is born. So he's 100. So if he's 175 years old, how old is Isaac? Is your math that bad? Simple math. Did is you not have huh? what? The simple math is seventy-five. Yeah, that's it. Okay. Abraham breathed his last. He died in a good old age, an old man, and full of his years. And he was gathered to his people. I did a funeral a number of years ago. I preached a funeral a number of years ago of an elderly man. He was an incredible individual. I had known him for a long time. He had been involved in the school I, I led for a while. And they, the family asked me to do his funeral. And I used this verse as the key verse that I preached on because it fits him. An old man, there's nothing wrong with being old, an old man full of years. That's a Hebraism. That doesn't mean much to you and me, full of years. What that means is he lived a long, rich, fulfill. I don't mean rich monetarily, a long, rich, fulfilling life. Hard, yes. Testing, yes. And he was gathered to his people. It's really interesting that the text chooses to call it that, gathered to his people. That's how you look at the death of a believer. You're going home. You're going to where all your family is. Because as Jesus will say, I, our Father, Heavenly Father, our God is the God of the living, not of the dead. And Jesus will make very much in his discussion with the Sadducees that God is the God of the living. There is life after death. And so the language of, ooh, I got to quit here. The language of the Bible, even here in the Old Testament, 2026 BC, makes much of how do we look at the passing of a saint? They're gathered to his people. They're going home. Hey, Jim, so so if it's in John chapter 11, when Jesus called Lazarus out of the grave, essentially he he's calling us to the living from that point on, right? Yep. When he... Well, I mean, that's the, that's, 
and I'm going to have to quit here, but that is one of the key elements of the Old and the New Testament. Death does not end things. Death is a transition for the believer to the next phase of life, because life is eternal. For the unbeliever, death is a very tragic thing, but for the believer, when my parents both passed, uh, that was one of the things we talked about, their home. And when Peggy's mom died uh, a couple years ago, that was very, very, very important to my wife, that her mom has gone home. And when you put it that way, that means we're going to see her again. John. I go to quite a few funerals, uh, and there's such a difference between a believer and non-believer. Non-believer is just despair and grief and sadness. And, uh, and there is there's always grief and sadness in the passing of a loved one who's a believer, but there's that hope and that joy and that certainty. I'll see them again. Is that old that old saying? Uh, believers really don't say goodbye. Believers say, "See you later," which is good. I've got to quit here. I'm way over. Let me pray real quickly. Father, thank you for the life of Abraham. We've been studying this great patriarch. Now we're in chapter 25. Since chapter 12, we've spent a lot of time. But he is the father of those who believe. He's the giant paradigm of faith. Despite his stumbles and falls and mistakes, your grace is all over his life. And as we've just studied, chesed, the loyal covenant love of God, is so central to his life and to explaining even how you superintended events for Isaac to have his wife, Rebecca. Lord, help us to trust in your sovereignty, trust in your goodness, trust in your providence. We know you are a God who always has our best interests at heart, even when we don't understand everything that's happening. Help us to be, to be loyal covenant lovers of you, loyal to you, following in everything you're asking us to do faithfully as we trust and depend on you. Give us a good rest of the day. Watch over these men. Trust them to you in Christ's name. Amen. See you next week.